When we think of Virginia during the Civil War, any number of things come to mind. It was the great battlefield of the Civil War. It was the capital of the Confederacy. And then when you think in terms of military leadership, in many ways, Virginia is in the forefront. Almost a fourth of all Confederate generals during the Civil War came from the Commonwealth of Virginia. More than 90 native-born Virginians served as generals in the Confederate Army, more than any other southern state. And you think of some of the great leaders of the southern armies during the Civil War who came from Virginia. There's Lee, Jackson, Stewart. The list goes on and on and on. And certainly, without question, these southern, Confederate, these southern commanders have been honored in many ways, memorialized. You go down Monument Avenue, which is a tribute to many of those Confederate leaders from Virginia. Schools are named for them. Buildings are named for them. Bridges are named for them. But there is another group of generals from Virginia for which you will find no schools named. <laughs> you won't find any monuments, and you won't find any bridges named for them. As I mentioned, Virginia supplied more generals to the Confederate Army than any other southern state, but ironically, they supplied more generals to the Union Army than any other southern state and more than five northern states. There were a total of 18 native-born Virginians who served as in the uniform of blue under the stars and stripes rather than in the uniform of gray under the stars and bars. And the, they're an interesting group. Without question, the most famous and important of those generals was General George Henry Thomas, a native of Southampton County, Virginia, Virginia, whose roots were very deep in Virginia history. And we are very fortunate to have the leading expert in the new biographer of George Thomas speak to us today. And that is Christopher J. Einhoff of Richmond, uh, grew up in Richmond, went to Trinity High School, graduated from Davidson College, and received his Ph.D. from the University of Virginia. He teaches in the sociology department and it specializes in historical sociology. And I had the pleasure and honor of reading his biography of Thomas in manuscript form, and uh, I was very excited about what he had found. And uh, Thomas, to me, is one of the most intriguing and in many ways, one of the most admirable characters and persons in Virginia history. It is my pleasure to turn the program over to Chris Einhoff, who will share his views on General Thomas with you today. Chris? Uh, thank you for that introduction, and, and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to be here today. Um, it's very appropriate to give this talk at the Virginia Historical Society. Uh, given that the VHS has Thomas's sword, uh, it also has the Thomas family account books and uh, most of Thomas's surviving personal letters. And there are not very many, so it's really the archives here were uh, an invaluable, the, the most important resource for me, uh, other than the National Archives, of course, for, for doing this biography. Um, I'm going to start by talking about my own interest in Thomas, uh, how I came to, to write about him. Um, I grew up in Richmond, and... Uh, uh, this really is why I became interested in him. Uh, growing up, uh, getting the Virginia history uh, classes in school and so on, I heard an awful lot about Robert E. Lee and, and other Confederate generals from Virginia. Uh, and mysteriously, I didn't hear a single word about uh, George Thomas. Um, and I, I didn't know really anything about him until uh, I went to college and just started reading about Civil War history in general. Normally, um, he's covered... These are just pictures here on the screen. I'll put a picture of him while I'm talking about him. Uh, 
normally he's, he's discussed as a military leader. Um, and if you look at a typical Civil War history book, uh, they'll talk about his generalship and his leadership and campaigns. Um, and somewhere in a footnote, footnote, they'll say, oh, by the way, he was from Virginia. Uh, it's not considered very interesting in conventional history. Well, I thought that, oh, by the way, he was from Virginia was very interesting. And uh, I wanted to know more about it. Uh, and uh, was not really happy with the, the biographies that I found, so set out to write one. Uh, so now I know a lot more about him than I used to. And um, uh, I, there's a, a couple interesting things I found out about him. So I, I found out that I found a lot about his military career, and that's going to be one major topic of this talk. Uh, I found out a lot about his Southern Unionism, which is uh, uh, the second major subject. And the third subject of this talk is something I didn't discover until I was well into this, and that's that uh, he started out as a slave owner and a pretty conservative person on his uh, racial views. Uh, but by the end of his life, he had done a complete conversion to being a real civil rights advocate and defender. Uh, he commanded in, in Kentucky and Tennessee during Reconstruction, and he really led the fight uh, to protect blacks from uh, white violence and to defeat the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which began in Tennessee. Uh, so this was even more interesting. How does this very conservative, slave-owning person uh, go through this change of beliefs and become a, a civil rights advocate and a defender of black rights? So those three topics, uh, Thomas the General, Thomas the Southern Unionist, and Thomas the Civil Rights Advocate are what I'm going to talk to you about today. Well, Thomas was born in Southampton County, Virginia. Uh, this is his house, which still stands today. And you can see from his house that uh, this is a nice, uh, big, uh, comfortable, prosperous farmhouse. Uh, but it's not a plantation mansion. And, and this is pretty much what, where Thomas was uh, in the social structure of Virginia. His, his family was, was well off and prosperous. Uh, they owned about 400 acres of land and, and a little bit more than 20 slaves. Uh, which put them towards the high end of um, the, the society, the, the higher strata of society, but not at the very top, um, not at the very uh, highest level of, of slave-owning uh, aristocracy. Um, he was not progressive, as I said, in his racial views. Um, some people have tried to explain his unionism or his civil rights advocacy later in life by, by going back and looking and saying, you know, he's particularly uh, pro-black or, or, or had progressive racial views earlier in life, and he really did not. Um, from everything that we can tell, uh, he was a typical sort of paternalistic southern uh, slave owner. So he uh, was affectionate towards his slaves. He, he um, had a high regard for them, tried to take care of them, but, but did not uh, believe, he did believe in the institution of slavery. Uh, and actually, a lot of, uh, one of the major events of his young life was Turner's Rebellion. Uh, Nat Turner's slave insurrection took place in South Hampton County, uh, Thomas had to flee his plantation uh, to escape being killed by Turner's men. And uh, by, it, it seems that most Southern whites at the time concluded from Turner's rebellion that, that blacks were dangerous, um, that blacks were inherently savage, and, and uh, that slavery was necessary to keep blacks under control. Uh, and there's no indication that Thomas felt any differently. So uh, far from being progressive, he was actually pretty conservative in what he viewed. Uh, the only kind of clue that we get about Thomas's later decisions um, is from a letter that's here at the VHS that, that he wrote to uh, his brother. And in the letter, he recalls the advice that his brother gave him when he left home for the first time. 
Uh, his family really placed a lot of uh, importance on thinking independently, on, on making your own moral decisions. Uh, and as Thomas was leaving home for West Point, his brother advised him, and I quote, having done what you conscientiously believe to be right, you may regret, but should never be annoyed by a want of approbation, approbation or approval on the part of others. Now, ironically, when, when Thomas made the most important moral decision of his life, the people who lacked approval were his own family. Uh, Thomas did well as a cadet at West Point. He, he graduated 12th in a class of 42. Uh, and one kind of interesting aspect of his West Point career is that his first-year roommate was William T. Sherman, uh, and the two were lifelong friends. Uh, Thomas uh, kept his money in Sherman's bank in the 1850s. They wrote personal letters. They're, they're quite close. Um, when he graduated from West Point, he served in the uh, Army in Florida, fighting the Seminole Indians. Uh, and then he also served in the Mexican War. And he um, distinguished himself in both theaters. He uh, won a brevet promotion for his service in Florida, and then he won two other brevet promotions in Florida for his service at the Battles of Monterey and Buena Vista. And uh, brevet promotions uh, at the time, the, the pre-Civil War Army didn't have medals for bravery or heroism. Um, so they gave these brevet promotions, which are uh, temporary promotions given on the field of battle for courage or, or duty. Uh, and receiving three brevet promotions in about 10 years marked him as, as one of the most decorated and uh, uh, distinguished junior officers in the Army. Um, now, um, his heroism didn't go unnoticed at home, and uh, the, the people of Southampton County formed a committee and voted to award him this sword, uh, which is here. You can see it upstairs in the permanent collection. Uh, and it's a very nice uh, sword, uh, beautiful silver scabbard and lots of decorations, jewel on the pommel. Uh, Thomas was very gratified to receive the sword, um, but very horrified at the idea of having to go uh, stand in front of a room full of people and accept it. Um, and uh, he actually um, wrote back to his brother that he considered for a long time not even coming home after the Mexican War because uh, he was so embarrassed at the point that the idea that he'd have to go to this banquet or, or a ceremony. And I quote, I hope they will not enact the absurd ceremony of presenting me with the sword. If I could get off with a dinner only, I should have great cause to congratulate myself. So uh, uh, history, history does not record whether he got off with a dinner only. I hope he didn't. I hope he, he was fully embarrassed. Um, <laughs> but uh, after Mexico, he came back uh, to the United States and served in various um, posts. Uh, he was in the artillery, uh, so he served in various posts, mostly in forts uh, along the East Coast. And at this time in his life, he, he started to look around for a woman to marry. Uh, and he was a shy man and... and uh, had a hard time finding a suitable candidate. Uh, for a while, he served in Charleston at Fort Moultrie in Charleston Harbor. And it was the custom of the time for uh, the distinguished families of Charleston to come out and um, spend the summers at the fort because it was sort of a beach uh, resort, really, or it was a beach area. Uh, and so the officers of the fort would meet the young ladies of Charleston and, and flirt, and sometimes marriages would happen. Uh, and he wrote his brother that he wanted to get married, but, and I quote, I fear, fear my prospects in this quarter are rather gloomy. 
Uh, the South Carolina girls flirt very charmingly, but when matters become serious, they give a very decided practical illustration of the domestic policy of their state by nullifying instantly. <laughs> uh, later, he served at West Point uh, as the instructor of cavalry and artillery. He served uh, during the time that Robert E. Lee was, was commander. Um, and uh, he finally found a suitable candidate. He married Frances Kellogg, um, who had a cousin uh, who was a cadet at West Point. Uh, and by all accounts, they had a very happy marriage. They, they didn't have any children, uh, but they seemed to be very happy with one another. And she really supported him emotionally during the very difficult time after his own family uh, stopped talking to him. Um, after West Point, he served in Fort Yuma, Arizona. He served in Texas for a long time. Uh, again, he served with Lee in Texas. Uh, he was wounded for the only time in his career in Texas. He was fighting Comanche Indians, and one fired an arrow at him, which glanced off his chin and, and embedded in his chest, um, and apparently was not uh, a serious injury. By one account, he pulled the arrow out himself and just kept going. So uh, it's the only uh, time he was ever wounded in battle, despite the, the great risks that he took. Oh, and this is a picture, this is the earliest picture that we have of Thomas. This is a daguerreotype that was done while he was at uh, West, around the time he was at West Point. I suspect that he did this um, for his uh, wife to hold on to while he was off on the frontier service. Um, well, uh, we come now to his, his most famous moral decision, his decision for, for the Union. Uh, and it happened in this way. He um, actually went on furlough in late 1860, uh, just to visit his home. Uh, and on the way home, he stepped off a railway, uh, out of the railway car in, um, I think it was Roanoke, and, and slipped off the, the railway embankment and fell and really badly injured his back. Uh, so much so that he, he couldn't be moved. He, had to, he made it by a train to Norfolk, and he had to wait for a while and then could finally take the coach to his family's home in Southampton. And then in January, he moved on to visit his wife's family in New York. Um, at this time, uh, Lincoln, this is after Lincoln's election and, and the secession crisis had begun, uh, but Virginia had not yet seceded. Uh, in, he stayed in New York until uh, uh, April, and um, in March, uh, the, Virginia's governor, John Letcher, uh, wrote Thomas and asked him if he was willing to serve as chief of ordinance for the Virginia State Militia. Uh, and Virginia had not yet seceded at this point, uh, and it wasn't 100% clear if it would, but it looked like it might happen. So it seemed that uh, at this point he was really choosing between continuing in the, the Union service or deciding to side with Virginia, whatever it eventually decided to do. Uh, and his response to this letter is interesting. He says, uh, it is, he declined the offer, and he said, it is not yet my wish to leave the service of the United States. As long as it is honorable for me to remain in it, as long as it's honorable for, for me to remain in it, and therefore, as long as my native state remains in the Union, it is my purpose to remain in the Army, unless required to perform duties alike repulsive to honor and humanity. So he affirmed his Unionism in March, but it was very conditional. It was conditional on Virginia staying in the Union, and it was conditional on not performing duties of, uh, repulsive to honor and humanity. And the only duties of this sort I could think of would be, you know, being called upon to fight against uh, Southerners and, and suppress the, uh, to fight against the, the secession. 
Um, now, he did seem to be wavering in March, but uh, just a month later, after Fort Sumter and after Virginia's secession, um, when he was called upon to serve his country, he, he did so without hesitation. Uh, and the question is why? What, what made Thomas side with the Union, whereas so many other Virginians and Southerners sided with the Confederacy? Um, well, during and after the Civil War, uh, Southern writers uh, and pro-Confederate writers uh, claimed that it was his wife's influence, that, that somehow um, you know, she used her Yankee wiles on her husband and, and uh, convinced him to go against his own, his own wishes. Uh, and she denied this always. Uh, she outlived him, and for the rest of his life, she denied this. In 1884, she wrote, There is never a word passed between myself or any one of our family on the subject of his remaining loyal to the United States government. We felt that whatever his course, it would be from a conscientious sense of duty and that no one could persuade him to do what he felt was not right. Later, she said, Turn it everywhere he would, every way he would, the one thing that was uppermost was his duty to the government of the United States. Uh, and this is what Thomas himself said uh, while he was alive. In 1866, he made a speech before the Tennessee State Legislature where he talked about his decision. Uh, and he said that he made his decision based on the oath that he had taken when he entered the Army uh, to sustain, I quote, to sustain the Constitution of the United States and the government and to obey all officers of the government placed over me. He went on to say that I did not regard it so much as an oath, but as a solemn pledge on my part to return to the government some little service for the great benefit I had received in, in obtaining my education at the academy. So um, the key to Thomas's decision, I think, uh, has to do with his sense of duty. He was a very, um, as we see, he was an independent moral thinker. He had a strong sense of duty of, of obeying the law, of following the rules. Um, and uh, this, this idea that he had taken an oath and he had to abide by his promise, this outweighed all other considerations for him. Uh, and the contrast here with Lee is interesting. Um, we know that Lee uh, opposed secession and, and um, felt like the secession cause uh, you know, didn't really support it, but he felt that when he had to make a choice, he had to go with his native people, with his family and his native state. Uh, and he's often praised for this decision uh, as being a, a strongly moral one. Um, but I think Thomas, you know, at least from his perspective, Thomas would feel that his decision was really the moral choice and the more difficult choice. Um, he would say that you know, Lee really went with his heart uh, and followed his emotions, whereas Thomas really went with his head. He followed his sense of duty and what he thought was right, even though he didn't personally you know, like it, uh, and even though it was very costly to him emotionally. Uh, and it really was. It was costly financially. He had uh, a lot of investments in Virginia, which he lost all of. Um, it was costly emotionally. He, his brothers and sisters refused to talk to him after that. Uh, after the war, he reconciled with his brothers, uh, and they seemed to have gotten along fine. His sisters never spoke to him again. Um, well, moving forward to his uh, service in the Civil War, um, and this is where I really talk about his skill as a general, um, he was famous for his personal courage, for, for leading from the front. I'll talk about what makes him a, a good general. Uh, he's famous for his personal courage, from leading from the front, from uh, leading his men uh, into battle or, or standing with them when they needed to defend a position, uh, for riding out ahead at great personal risk to, to reconnoiter positions and so on. Um, and he was also known for his moral courage, for uh, 
you know, he didn't just go along with what people told him to do. He, he really stood up for what he thought was the best way to fight the war, even when it cost his career. And, and there's a couple occasions where it really did. He, he lost chances to advance because he refused to comply with some policy that he thought was wrong. Um, he, uh, sort of a neglected aspect of his military skill is the uh, great um, effort and skill he put into training his men and providing them with logistic support. So uh, his, his nickname that the men had for him was Old Pap Thomas. Uh, and this really reflects, they, they thought of him as a father figure. They, they saw him as providing for them, you know, always making sure they had enough to eat, they had good medical care, uh, that they had good uh, uh, uniforms and, and places to stay, uh, places for shelter. He even provided for them after their deaths. He, he founded one of the first big national ceremonies and uh, cemeteries in Chattanooga. Um, and they really appreciated their concern for him. Um, uh, he also, he was a risk taker. He did take risks in battle, but he only took calculated risks, and he only fought when he thought he had a good chance of winning. And his men really appreciated it. And if you see that, you know, throughout the War of the Army of the Cumberland, his army performs really well in battlefields. They have this very high morale and are very willing to, uh, you know, attack and defend. And I think... Uh, it's really all of his training and, and support for them. They, they knew that he wouldn't ask them to fight unless it was really important, uh, and they really stood by him. Well, his early service um, was actually in Virginia. Uh, this is a map that he himself drew. It's a little hard to see, uh, but this is Martinsburg, which is now West Virginia, and he served as chief of cavalry for a force that crossed the Potomac and invaded that part of Virginia as part of the Manassas campaign. Uh, he, saw, he didn't see very much fighting in this. Um, he pretty much missed the Battle of, of Bull Run because um, he was with a you know, different force. And then he was transferred to Kentucky, where he served under his old friend William Sherman. Um, he won his first significant victory in Kentucky um, at Mill Springs, uh, which is in eastern Kentucky, and he fought uh, an invading Confederate force of uh, and defeated it. The, the Confederates tried to surprise him. Uh, his men were not surprised. He fought them off. And it's a pretty significant, uh, pretty substantial victory. They, they, the Confederate army fled the field and, uh, in great disarray, and uh, he pursued, and, and the, the army pretty much melted away. Now, by later standards, this is a very small battle, only about 5,000 people on each side. Uh, but by, um, it was one of the first big Union victories since Bull Run, so uh, this got him a lot of national attention. Um, it was sort of a, uh, a way for the nation to sort of regain its, its stature after its defeat. Uh, after Mill Springs, he served for a couple years, always in a subordinate capacity, um, first under uh, Buell and then under Rosecrans. Um, uh, during, he was participated in the Shiloh campaign and the Perryville campaign, although the forces that he commanded didn't actually, weren't actually engaged in those battles. Uh, he saw service at Stones River or, or Murfreesboro, um, and he served as a subordinate under Rosecrans. But really, the, the second case in which he exercised independent command was uh, the Battle of Chickamauga in uh, September of 1863. And this is where he really uh, achieved much of his fame, uh, and, you know, the, the most... The Rock of Chickamauga is how he's probably best known today. Um, in Chickamauga, uh, he 
This was a, a battle that was fought. Uh, his superior, Rosecrans, um, fought a campaign of maneuver in which he managed to capture Chattanooga without a, a fight uh, and maneuver the Confederate force under Braxton Bragg into, into retreating. Uh, and then he was pursuing them on, on the way along the railroad to uh, Atlanta. Uh, Bragg had retreated, but he had retreated in good order and was pulling together a, a counterattack. And, and in this, he was assisted by forces under Longstreet. Uh, the Confederacy transferred uh, men from the Army of Northern Virginia to the Tennessee Theater by, by rail. Uh, so this is actually one of the very few Civil War battles in which the Confederacy outnumbered the Union uh, troops. Um, the, Confeder- the Union troops fought a defensive battle uh, that lasted two days. On the first day, the Union did quite well. The, the majority of the Confederate attacks, um, or many of them, fell on Thomas's forces, uh, and he launched an effective defense, and, and they held their ground. It was sort of a tie. Uh, on the second day, uh, the main attack was meant to fall on Thomas's part of the line. He was sort of holding the northern part of the Union line, and it did, and during the morning, he drove off all the attacks pretty easily. Uh, but then late in the morning, Longstreet launched his own attack. Uh, and just by coincidence, the, the place where his target attack was targeted was a part of the Union line where Rosecrans had just um, left a gap. He, he mixed up his orders and, and made some errors and eventually, eventually uh, essentially left a big part of his defense line completely empty. He ordered one group to leave the line and take a place elsewhere, and he forgot to put somebody else where they used to be. Uh, so Longstreet's attack went directly into this hole, uh, and they met no resistance and just fanned out into the rear of the Union Army. Uh, and then everybody around them, uh, all the Union troops around them, were surrounded, so they, they ran away. Uh, the, about half the Union Army broke and fled in panic back to Chattanooga. And with them went the commander of the Union Army, William Rosecrans, and the two other corps commanders, there were three sort of uh, assistant commanders of the Army, Thomas being one. Uh, so by the early afternoon, uh, half the Army's gone, and Thomas is left on the field uh, with nobody else facing the entire Confederate Army. Uh, and actually, Thomas hasn't figured out yet that this has happened. As far as he knows, they're winning. Uh, but he did start to hear some noise out to the south, um, he started to hear what sounded like fighting and so on, going, coming from a place that seemed to be in the rear of the Union lines. It was coming from behind him. Uh, so he rode south to find out what was going on and pretty quickly ascertained that there was a lot of Confederate soldiers uh, with guns drawn marching around where it was supposed to be Union territory. Um, he improvised a defense on a hill that's known as either Horseshoe Ridge or, or Snodgrass Ridge, and he held his ground there all day. Uh, everybody who participated in this battle uh, of Horseshoe Ridge uh, said that Thomas's personal leadership was really what made the difference between success and defeat that day. Um, that whenever people wavered or, or felt afraid, they would look back and they'd see, you know, Thomas riding on his horse behind the lines, this huge and sort of inviting target for the Confederate guns, but somehow mysteriously never getting hit. When the Confederates took part of the ridge, he would personally lead counterattacks to drive them back off. And they managed to hold out. Um, you know, they, they even ran out of ammunition at point, one point, and he said, well, just use your bayonets. Uh, they managed to hold out to the end of the day and withdraw in relatively good order to, um, to Chattanooga. Uh, their stand really um, 
the the fact that they they stood and, and fought off the Confederate Army at this point really preserved the Union Army. Uh, if they had not done so, um, it's likely that it would have been a very significant defeat for the Union. And I think this is one of Thomas's most significant contributions to the Union war effort. Uh, if you think about it, you know, sort of from the start of the Civil War, the Confederacy had been looking for this big victory uh, based on sort of the idea of the Battle of Saratoga and the Revolutionary War, this big defeat in which they would completely force another, a Union uh, force to surrender and uh, demoralize the North and, and bring in foreign intervention maybe. This is what Lee was looking, at, looking for at Gettysburg, for example. At Chickamauga, they came very close to achieving this victory. Um, and if, I think if Thomas had not fought the way he did, they, they might have gotten it, and the Civil War could have come out differently. Well, let me go back. Uh, this is a picture of Thomas much later in the, the war. Uh, well, Thomas served under... Uh, after uh, Chickamauga, he continued to serve in a subordinate capacity. He served under Grant at Chattanooga. Uh, in the Atlanta campaign that followed, um, he served under Sherman. So again, he's taking a secondary role. Uh, after Atlanta, Thomas um, was, when uh, Sherman went on his march to the sea, it was unclear whether the Confederate Army would follow um, Sherman on his march southward or whether he would turn north and try to reinvade Tennessee. This is uh, the Confederate Army under John Bell Hood. Uh, so Sherman took the best troops of the Army of the Cumberland and the other Western armies with him on his march to the sea. And he left Thomas back behind in uh, Nashville in charge of the people who were supposed to defend uh, Tennessee. And he left them with this sort of scratch force, uh, different sort of second-rate, mostly second-rate kind of uh, units. Uh, well, it turns out that Hood did go north and attack, try to reconquer Tennessee, and he eventually faced Thomas at Nashville. Um, and Thomas uh, delayed for a little bit before attacking. Uh, he wanted to get fully ready, and then fought uh, Hood at Nashville and, and completely defeated him. Uh, it was a two-day battle, and at the end of it, uh, Hood's forces retreated in great disorder uh, back to um, Alabama. And uh, Thomas uh, pursued them uh, throughout their retreat and did not manage to completely cut them off and defeat them, but, but pursued them at, at such a close, um, harassed them so much during their retreat that uh, the force that made it back to Alabama really wasn't much of an army anymore. And, and in fact, it never took the field again as an army. Parts of it were sent east um, to oppose Sherman, and other parts were sent to other quarters. But uh, it pretty much took one of the major... Confederate armies out of circulation. It really left Lee's army as the only significant force. Uh, and then it also left much of the, the Deep South open to Union invasion. Well, this is a huge success. Um, and uh, unfortunately did not result in much of a career uh, improvement for Thomas. Uh, he had gained a reputation for slowness. Grant thought that it, at Chattanooga, Thomas was, was too cautious and then he thought that he was too slow to attack Hood. It was very embarrassing for the Union to have a um, major Confederate army uh, camped outside of Nashville for two weeks while Thomas finally got ready to attack them. And uh, they, after this, they, uh, Thomas really wasn't given a major command. Um, his forces were broken up, and, and uh, the field command was taken by other people. And he sort of stayed as a district commander in Nashville, but he wasn't really leading from the field. 
So that's sort of unfortunate for Thomas that this victory turned into this not, didn't, he wasn't really rewarded for it in his career. Uh, but there's one other big uh, important aspect of the Battle of Nashville, that, and this relates to the, the third topic of my talk, which is, you know, I've talked about Thomas the Southern Unionist, and I've given you a very brief idea of what Thomas was like as a general. Uh, but I wanted to save time to really talk about my third, third theme, which is Thomas the Civil Rights Advocate. And his decision on civil rights, his change of views on, on blacks and civil rights, really comes from the Battle of Nashville. Um, he had uh, supported, even though he was a slave owner, he had supported the idea of sort of using the Confederacy slaves against them. So he had supported, and this, and this is to, just to win the war. Uh, and this is similar to most northern whites. Most northern whites weren't particularly... Uh, abolitionist or, or didn't have strong feelings about slavery, but, but viewed it, uh, thought it was a good idea to uh, treat black runaway slaves as contrabands and employ them as laborers or even employ them as soldiers because, you know, this is a way to, to successfully bring the war to a close. Uh, and Thomas was similar to most northern whites in this respect. He, he, uh, he did support arming blacks as soldiers, but he never thought that they would make very good soldiers. He had a pretty low opinion of what, what blacks would do uh, he saw them train and, and um, uh, he saw them uh, get ready to fight and he remarked that, well, they'd probably, make, they'd probably be able to fight okay behind breastworks, but he didn't really trust them to lead a charge or to fight in the open field of battle. And his use of black soldiers is consistent with this. Before the Battle of Nashville, he used them uh, as garrison duty uh, in rare areas. He, he used them as labor troops, but he never used them on the front lines. Now, in... Uh, at Nashville, um, he was forced to do so. He, he didn't have enough white troops to cover his line, so he used black troops in the battle, but he put them uh, on the point of the battlefield where they were least likely to uh, have any effect. He, he, had this, he was going to have a main attack occur on this one part of the line, and he put them all the way on the least important part of the line. Um, however, uh, his subordinate argued that the, the person who was directly commanding these troops said that, well, why don't we use them as sort of a distraction attack? Well, we'll have them launch an attack early in the battle uh, as sort of a, a diversion uh, to distract attention away from the main effort. And Thomas thought that would be fine. Uh, well, his subordinate sort of exceeded his orders. He, he was kind of eager for glory, and he launched what turned out to be a very major attack. Um, and uh, after the battle, Thomas reviewed, rode over the battlefield to see what had happened. Uh, and what he saw that day... Uh, permanently changed his views on race. Everywhere he rode, uh, he saw the bodies of black soldiers. Uh, in some places, he saw black and white soldiers mixed together on the battlefield in death. Uh, in other places, he saw only black soldiers. And he learned that uh, the black units had all kept pressing the attack, even after the point where some of the white units had run away in panic. Uh, and at one point, he saw sort of piles of black corpses right in front of the Confederate works where the, where the Confederate defense line had been. Uh, and this indicates that the soldiers, the black soldiers, had pressed their attack um, to the point of death. Instead of retreating, they had kept coming forward until they finally could no longer attack. Uh, they, they'd been all killed. Uh, and this had a very profound effect on him. He was silent for a long time. And then he said, gentlemen, the question is settled. Negroes will fight. Later, he said, this proves the manhood of the Negro. Now, actually, the question had been settled quite a while before. This is late 1864. 
and blacks had served very capably in a number of other battles. Uh, but I think Thomas's racial prejudices were so ingrained that he really, newspaper coverage or reports from other people wouldn't change his mind. He had to see it for himself. Um, and um, once he did see it for himself, this really did have a profound effect on him, however. He, he had his, um, and I think the key to his change of views has to do with his status as a military leader and a career soldier. You know, as a soldier, he had always learned that the greatest values that a human can have, a man can have, are honor and discipline, courage, obedience, um, uh, obedience to duty. And uh, he saw that blacks um, could really rise to the highest level in all of these virtues and could even exceed whites in their devotion and courage and discipline and duty. So, you know, from his point of view, if, if this... If blacks were equal or superior to whites in these virtues, they must be truly men and truly deserving of citizenship and rights. Well, uh, he acted on this. This is a picture of Thomas very late in his life um, during Reconstruction, uh, after a service of Reconstruction. You can see the toll uh, that it's taken on his health um, serving in the, the occupied South. Um, he commanded a district centered on Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, and this is where the Ku Klux Klan first took root, Tennessee, and then it spread to Kentucky and other parts of the South. Um, throughout this period, uh, white Confederates, uh, former Confederates, really kind of refused to accept uh, the end of slavery, and they tried to assign to blacks a second-class status. So they tried to discriminate against them legally, politically, uh, and economically. They used... Um, vagrancy laws to force blacks to sign labor contracts. And he found it very disturbing that white Southerners refused to accept the new order. He was a very law and order kind of person. He, he saw his fellow Southerners as essentially law-abiding people. And he thought, you know, now that the war is over and they've been defeated, they will accept the rule of law. They'll, they'll go on and do what they should do. Uh, and when they didn't, he found it very upsetting. He got very angry about this. Uh, he did everything in his power to um, protect blacks. He sent troops to, uh, to guard the polls so that blacks could vote. Uh, he uh, used military courts, military tribunals, to try whites um, who violated black rights. Uh, and he used these tribunals when the local white courts would not, you know, the state and, and local courts wouldn't act. Uh, and he sent troops after the Ku Klux Klan. He was not, however, successful at all. Uh, and it was really just beyond the ability of anybody to succeed. Uh, he lacked, really, the men. Most of the army had been disbanded after the war. Uh, and he also um, lacked the authority, uh, given that the local whites were almost unanimous in opposing federal authority, um, you know, except in eastern Tennessee and some other unionist areas. He really just didn't have, by himself, he didn't have the authority to, to carry out what he wanted to do. And he was very frustrated by this, and he also attributed um, white uh, disobedience with sort of the rise of the lost cause myth. And I'll quote his own words on the lost cause. This is from his annual report to Congress from 1868. He said, The controlling cause of the unsettled condition of affairs in the department is that the greatest efforts made by the defeated insurgents since the close of the war has been to promulgate the idea that the cause of liberty, justice, humanity, equality, and all the calendar of the virtues of freedom suffered violence and wrong when the effort for Southern independence failed. 
This is, of course, intended as a species of political cant, whereby the crime of treason might be covered with a counterfeit varnish of patriotism. So the precipitators of the rebellion might go down in history, hand in hand with the defenders of the government, thus wiping out with their own hands their own stains, a species of self-forgiveness amazing in its effrontery. So Thomas was no friend to the uh, lost cause movement of uh, history. He, he, he was very uh, anti-secession, um, very unforgiving. Well, um, Thomas died shortly after this. He, he died in 1870. Uh, in 1869, he was sent to San Francisco uh, to command the Department of the Pacific, and he died there a year later. He was one of the first Civil War uh, major Union generals to die after the Civil War, uh, and his death was a national event. That his coffin was greeted by crowds on his way back from California. Uh, this is the, a picture of his um, uh, funeral at Troy, New York. He was buried at his wife's home. Uh, and the president and members of Congress, the Supreme Court, pretty much everybody who was anybody came to this funeral. Uh, there are thousands of people there. Uh, and his reputation continued to rise in the decade or two after his death. Uh, this is the erection of his um, monument in 1879. So he is very famous uh, throughout the 18, uh, late 1800s. And um, I have here a contemporary illustration. And this is sort of the pantheon of Union generals that stood in the, in the late 1800s. So we have Grant and Sherman. Then we also have Sheridan and Thomas. Uh, today, Grant and Sherman are still well known, but, but Thomas is forgotten. And the question is why? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is that you know, Thomas left no memoir, and his wife destroyed his personal papers after her death. So he's a very tough subject for biographers. Uh, the second one is that uh, he really didn't have much of a post-Civil War career. The, the other three folks here had these long sort of careers in, in after the Civil War uh, and continued to become famous, whereas Thomas died. Uh, but I would argue that, that one of the, the real reasons is the rise of the reconciliationist view of, of uh, Civil War history. So during this period, uh, Northerners were very unforgiving toward the South about the Civil War. They really blamed them for starting the war. They, you know, they called it the War of the Rebellion. Um, and Thomas really became famous not only as a general but as a Unionist. They, they held him up as an example of, you know, see, there are such things as good Southerners. There are such things as Southerners who are loyal to their country. Uh, and the rest of you sort of have no excuse. Uh, as the North came to accept uh, Confederate views of, of Civil War history and be more forgiving, that became less important. Thomas was no longer, you know, it was no longer so important to have a Southern Unionist to hold up as an example, and his reputation declined. Well, I would argue that um, his reputation should be uh, climbing again. And I, I think the, the third aspect of his career has really become more important today. Um, we've already talked about it. He's always been well-known as a general. He was well-known as a Southern Unionist, and then that became less important. Uh, but the third aspect of his career, his, his career as a civil rights advocate, has never really gotten much attention. Uh, and I think that's really uh, one of the most important things about him. Um, his conversion on race makes him almost unique. I don't know of any other Southern officers, that, Southern-born Union officers, that went through this experience. And uh, it's... Uh, really tells us a lot about racial views in the 19th century and how, um, how people might, might change their, their minds on race. Uh, his example of tolerance and open-mindedness to, to new ideas 
I think really makes him a hero with relevance, with relevance for our time. And, and I hope my, that my biography can help bring him back to the attention that he deserves. Well, I thank you for your attention, and I open up the floor to questions.